Welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. On this show, we're going to explore the idea of social haunting, or how the troubles of the past might be playing a role in community problems today. We're going to hear from researchers in formerly industrialized areas in the north of England, where mines and mills have shut down. And we will be joined by psychologist Wayne Coombs to look at the role that social haunting or historical trauma may be playing in the growing substance abuse crisis in central Appalachia. In fall 2017, WMMT received a request from community radio broadcaster Max Monday to share his documentary, Songlines and Social Haunting, about a research project based at Manchester Metropolitan University that was designed to understand how unresolved trouble, as well as possibilities in the past, haunt communities in the present. Max invited us to join an international conversation about social haunting and its impact. Before we play the documentary, we will hear from lead researcher Dr. Jeff Bright, who tells about his background and describes the process of deindustrialization that has affected working class people in Northern England over the past 30 years. I spoke with Jeff via Skype. To the first development of coal mining, all my family, all the men have been in coal mining and all the women, women have been involved in, in supporting that process through, uh, through domestic labor and so on and so forth. So I'm a son of that, that setting, uh, and that's had an enormous impact on the way that I've framed my life and values, I guess. Uh, was educated in South Yorkshire, just outside the, uh, the city of Sheffield, which was a huge steel-making city, similar to kind of like Pittsburgh or somewhere like that, I would guess. As a young man, kind of working-class background, going nowhere, the whole expectation was that all the lads would finish up in the pits, and the girls would finish up in the factories, uh, very disengaged from school, but started to get interested in, I guess, the power of words, largely through an experience with an English teacher. Anyway, went off to work in industry, worked as a steelworks labourer for a number of years, uh, worked as a railway worker for a number of years, uh, and very, very quickly got involved, even as a 19, 20-year-old, in trade union activism, because that was kind of bred into the family. It's been a 30-year period that we've been looking at, uh, in this country, now a complete, literally, uh, deindustrialization of the former coal fields. Just for your listeners, it's important to say that we're specifically talking about deep mined coal uh, in the UK, and we tend to use the term pits. So in that period, in 30 years ago, thereabouts, there was the, a huge strike in the coal mining industry against uh, uh, an attack on uh, jobs in the coal mining industry. Long story short, within that 30 years, coal mining in this country has been reduced from employing round about 200,000 workers to employing precisely nobody and from 200 pits 
to precisely no pits whatsoever. So that's that's the kind of incredible decline that there's been. Uh, if I look outside my window now, I look over something that's now called a country park. I don't know whether you've had this phenomenon. Maybe it's not got to West Virginia or, or that area. But what's happened in the in the uh, UK context is that this, the pits were cleared very quickly, so there's nothing there, there's no memory of it, unless you happen to have the memory of it. And what I can see is a country park that's a kind of uh, quite pleasant area now where there's a lake and people run, but it looks forever to me like a grassed over uh, colliery waste spoil, which is exactly what it is. So there's this curious sense of the past's been entirely eradicated but it's also present everywhere, which is a key idea in the work that, that, that I've been doing and other people alongside me. The pit that I'm, I can look at out over, over the window there went in 1985, so that's 32 years since. Uh, but the employment that's coming in is largely zero-hours contract, warehouse work, uh, where it's difficult to, to organise trade unions, uh, and so on. So it's... it's in real terms, the wages in some of those jobs, and somebody quoted, a worker quoted this to me uh, not the other day, uh, is that the equivalent wage rates now are not as high, sterling pound for sterling pound or dollar for dollar, as you might say, as they were when the pits were still working back in the 1980s. So people are literally earning less in some cases than they were 30 years since. So that's, that's the shape of it. Realizing that industries were closing throughout Northern England, Jeff went on to work in trade union education, community education, and then pursued a PhD. It was during that time that he came across the work of Dr. Avery Gordon, a University of California sociologist who first put forth the concept of social haunting. Between 2000 and 2002, still working as a community educator, uh, I ran a project for young people who were being excluded from school. There were a host of school exclusions occurring across the coal fields that were supposedly, supposedly about bad behaviour, the fact that young people were ill-disciplined and so on. And I ran this project and it very quickly became apparent the, the pattern of school exclusions between 2000 and 2002, the pits had finished in the early 90s, they were no longer around, but the pattern of school exclusions was that many of the kids, if not most, were from former coal mining families, and if you looked at the geographies of that, uh, right down to street level, you could still see the same geography of the 1984-85 strike. I was working in a particular area where the strike had been very conflicted between areas that were largely on strike and some areas that were largely not on strike. And that same tension, the same levels of anger that had been around that was still playing out in these young people's lives 15 years later and a good 10 years after the pits had finished altogether. And that prompted a question, what on earth is happening here? How is it that something that's gone is still present everywhere? So that led to a PhD, basically a, do a doctoral study. And in that doctoral study, people kept saying things like, it's as if there's a kind of haunting going on. Trying to make sense of that, I eventually stumbled, and it was a stumble, really. Somebody passed Avery's details on to me, and I had a look at Avery's book, 
uh, ghostly matters haunting the sociological imagination, which immediately gave me a framework in which all the phenomena that I'd, that I'd observed made complete sense. So that's how we came to Avery and her notion of a social haunting. Not only did this idea of a social haunting encompass the damage that you could see on the ground, the, the, the pit villages we call them, I guess you call them coal camps, the pit yeah. villagers by 2000 were probably at their very lowest point. They'd been inundated by a wave of uh, heroin, the, the addicts were, were numerous, unemployment was still high, the housing stock had deteriorated massively. In fact, one of the people that I interviewed in the doctoral study, and I'm grateful for this phrase, it's her phrase, not mine, she said, it's as if once upon a time, some of the villagers in this country, they were model housing at the beginning of the 20th century. They were good places to live. My grandmother walked 20 miles from an older coal field to bring her kids into a newer coal field at the beginning of the 20th century because of these model villages, as they were called. By 2000, as, as this, the, the uh, participant in my project put it, the model villages had become brown city, and she meant by brown city, heroin. So mm. that, that, that kind of captures the, uh, the trajectory of, of that decline. So seeing all that on the ground made sense in Avery's terms, but it allowed me to think beyond that, not merely to, if you like, the pathology of a social haunting, its psychological and social damage, because that was pretty obvious and and there was people were doing some good structural research on it that looked at economic factors and so on but Avery's work essentially and I kind of really want to underline this she argues that what a social haunting does in addition to alerting us to the damage that's been done that in her terms has been caused by social violence it also alerts us to the fact that something different different from before, I think I'm pretty much quoting here, needs to be done. So she, she, she manages to articulate in that idea the fact that a social haunting always raises a, politic, a political imperative. It always calls for a political project. So for me, that allows us uh, to think beyond the pathology, the damage, the fact that that might be ameliorated, because the whole point was, and it's still the case, nearly 35 years since, in the pit villages, if you know the ghosts, you can be straight back to the 1984-85 strike within minutes of talking to somebody on the street. It's everywhere and it's nowhere. And it's political business about work, dignity, recognition, a sense of value is still absolutely present as, as, a, as a political desire, I think, that remains unmet and thereby hangs all other story. That was Dr. Jeff Bright, lead researcher from Manchester Metropolitan University. Next up is Max Mundy's documentary, Songlines and Social Haunting, which describes the research that is underway in Northern England. 
Max and his colleagues are very interested in any feedback you, the listeners, would like to offer about the project or your own experience with social haunting. If you would like to comment, you can send an email to WMMT at appleshop.org with social haunting in the subject line. Songlines and social haunting. Hello, my name's Max Monday. I'm a community broadcaster in Sheffield, in northern England. The documentary you're about to hear is part of a research project into the way that the past haunts the present in different communities in the UK. This programme is designed to begin a conversation. It started in the north of England and comes to you with the request that you share with us your thoughts and feelings in response to what you hear. The feedback you give to your local radio station will then return to us in Britain and complete our international conversation. So roll out the barrel and bang on the drum There's hope into This project is being conducted by Manchester Metropolitan University and is funded by the UK's Arts and Humanities Research Council. Our partners in this research are the Cooperative College and Unite Community. The Cooperative College preserves and promotes the histories and values of the cooperative movement. Unite Community is a section of the UK's biggest trade union, which was established to go beyond traditional workplace issues and to campaign in communities that face major social problems, such as precarious work, poor quality housing and health inequalities. This research worked in six communities in areas of Britain that were previously seen as very important centres of industry, coal mining and shipbuilding in the northeast, and in the northwest of England, textiles, pottery and coal. Today, though, those industries have gone, closed down by the government and affected by global market competition, which has left a legacy of social problems, poverty and has fractured traditional identities. Last year, the political situation in Britain was shaken by a popular vote for Brexit, for the country to leave the European Union. Former industrial working class communities in the north of England, whose voice and political power seemed so often to be sidelined, voted overwhelmingly to leave the EU. At the same time, right-wing nationalist political forces have been gathering support in communities like these right across the Western world. This provides a context for our work, but however different these communities seem from yours, in this documentary we hope to raise important questions that are meaningful to anyone who wants to explore ideas of community, memory, the production of knowledge and how we might imagine a better future. And if I close my eyes and dream, then peace would come and I'd be free. My neighbour was... This project has an ambitious aim, to create conditions in which groups can explore the complex and contradictory elements of being a community, and one that has been through rapid social, economic and political changes that were challenged and fought over. The research also hopes to enable the production of knowledge that exists inside communities, but may have been subjugated by powerful forces. The project draws on lots of influences, but works with a central concept called social haunting, 
The theory of social haunting was set out by the American professor Avery Gordon in her book Ghostly Matters, Haunting and the Sociological Imagination. Dr Jeff Bright, the leading academic on this project, explains. What she means by a social haunting is that in certain circumstances where, where there's been trouble, where there's been repression, uh, where there's been great pain, then that past presses into the present in, in ways that are not normally trackable and visible. And she's, what the point that she makes is that whenever social ghosts appear, they, they appear because the pressing concerns of the past have not been attended to. The work we're doing seeks to create a space where troubling feelings and issues of the past can be spoken about, and that when elements of that unresolved past make themselves felt in the present, as Avery Gordon suggests, something must be done. This project doesn't tell us what to do, there might not be simple answers, but this is one of the issues we would like you to think about in the context of your community, and to then share those thoughts with us. This research was conducted through workshops called Ghost Labs. The Ghost Labs were characterised by a caring, open and trusting atmosphere and used creative exercises to open up discussions about how the past, present and future interact in different communities. This involved free-flowing conversations alongside writing and drawing exercises that were led in the Ghost Labs by poet Andrew McMillan. Subconsciously, through their writing, ideas will come out that will speak towards this idea of a haunting, that will speak towards these kind of absences or gaps that people have felt, and will the writing maybe will show us the direction to fill up, I think, maybe. A feature of this current work is the use of community tarot cards. Traditionally, tarot is an attempt to understand what will happen to someone in the future and is associated with beliefs in a spirit world. In this project, however, our community tarot cards displayed random images and words. The participant would then select a card for their past, for their present and for their future, which would trigger discussion about values, experiences and hopes that they felt connected to that image or word. The aim was not to tell them what the cards meant, but contribute to a process in which legacies of our past were explored and new knowledge was created. The project has also reached out to other people through major conferences, festivals and political community events, where the team included actors from the New Vic Theatre in Stoke-on-Trent, as well as individuals exploring their associations with the cards. The actors connected the public to stories of the major struggle by coal miners and their families against the closure of their industry. Listening to the participants of the Ghost Lab were Brenda and Jeff Heslop, musicians who make up the band Ribbon Road. Their music is within a tradition of English ballads, and their songs tell the stories of people and communities with great empathy. In this project, the songs were written to convey the images and feelings that came out of the ghost labs. Brenda said, 
She hopes that their songs reach people and that they connect with them at a deep human level. You will hear excerpts from Ribbon Road songs throughout this documentary. They don't suffer gladly, they don't suffer fools, they're strong where they stand unafraid. These women of living with spark in their eyes, the strength to their arm and their days. Communities have a past and present that is experienced in complex ways by people who live there. But often it is the powerful who decide the story of that place. Powerful people outside and inside those communities. The Ghost Lab sought to allow people to express themselves. Rochdale, in the northwest of England, has been defined by tragedy in recent years due to the terrible spate of crimes committed against children there. As well as the damage done to those individuals, the town itself has been defined in wholly negative ways by the powerful and, as a participant from a previous ghost lab in the town explained, when a history of this period is written... We're all going to be unsure of where we stood in that because we all have our feelings about it, but we're not given a voice somehow. Or we're not, you know, we have to create a voice. Or we actually had no voice taken away from it. In this project, the participants were teenagers from a local healthcare service that works to treat young people with mental health problems. Running the community tarot exercise, one girl picked a card that featured an image of a broken sapling tree and was asked to think about how that might relate to her past. The girl started by saying that it looked like a tree that used to stand in the garden of her family's home but she went on to speak about her community. This one? Yeah, a broken tree. A broken tree? It reminded me because I had a massive tree in my back garden growing up. Right. Which were, had a thing that held it up like that. So it reminds me of my childhood. Wow. Yeah, but then because of the break, I got thinking, you've got a break before you can mend it. And then it got me thinking about Rochdale and how the reputation that we have of like all the child grooming that's going on and then about fixing that, wow. turning it into a positive thing. Someday I'll unlock this door, somebody If we're thinking about how the past continues to make itself felt in the present, we must also think about the future. The young and those yet to be born will construct that future whilst being shaped by the past. What we were hearing in this project suggested that more work could be done to bring together different generations in the ghost labs and open up new knowledge and understanding in the process. What do you think of this idea? How do people in your community speak across any barriers or divisions between older and younger people? Participants in this project spoke about their childhood and about how things used to be and what has changed. Alongside this there were comments about the current generation of young people living in very different ways to them and participants quite frequently articulated concern that there's mutual incomprehension or misunderstanding between older and younger people. This was particularly concerning for the South Asian women who participated in a ghost lab in Rochdale. They are a group 
who learn the English language together in classes provided by the WEA. The tutor in the group said that there was a wider problem of communication between parents from the South Asian community and their children, and those parents risked being unaware of negative influences on their children through what they were seeing online and through the media. The, the generation third, our generation, the voices, she's laughing at our kids. Don't speak, don't speak the language. They speak English. English only. Yeah. So the culture is not No, it's not bad, it's good, okay, where they are, they need to be learning all that. But that was one of the uh, extra thing because parents doesn't know what they're watching on the, on the telly or in their room on the internet. There was agreement in this group and amongst the young people in the other Rochdale Ghost Lab that the town needed more economic development. In the past, South Asian families were encouraged to migrate to Rochdale to work in the textile industry, but now, with a lack of well-paid work in the town, the next generation are leaving. Lots of Rochdale children are degree holders now, graduate, but we have lost our graduate, graduates. As soon as they grow up, Rochdale monies uh, provide their education and everything, but they move out of the countries, and, uh, sorry, move out of the city. Yeah. And that's a tiny little experience of my own family. Nieces and nephews, they all move out, where obviously in the excuses, wherever the jobs are, they move. There's the best fish and chip shop called Hubby's. There are books and the radio plays. It's not easy, but she seems to manage. She learns English and keeps to the face. A feature of the Ghost Labs was the natural poetry that came from participants. In the writing exercises, literally verses of poetry were written. But it was also that the imagery and words that were used to describe experiences, feelings and hopes for the future had an inherent poetry of their own. In Stoke-on-Trent, a ghost lab was held at the Burslem Jubilee Project with refugees who were seeking safety in the UK, having fled civil war and oppression in countries across North Africa and the Middle East. The context was similar to that of the other ghost labs, a formerly industrial area, rapid social and economic change, and a turbulent political situation. However, these people had suffered a very direct form of social violence and were now trying to survive in the present, many without their families who remained in their own countries. Poet Andrew Macmillan turned the discussion in that ghost lab to the future by asking each person to contribute a line to a poem that they'd constructed together, entitled Hope. Hope. I hope I can go to see my family. I hope I can go to see my family. I hope I can go to see my family, to bring my family here. That the war ends and I can see my family. That people stop hearing and start listening. That people stop talking and listen more. I hope for peace everywhere, that everyone's hope comes true. Our ties stay strong in this community, to come back and see everyone again, 
for strong and long and happy life. I hope my son is happy and settled. And if I close my eyes and dream that peace would come and I'd be free, my neighbour would still talk to me and I would live in harmony with you. For a group of women in the ghost lab on the Town End Farm housing estate in Sunderland, their exercise was to write down on blank cards the features of their community and lay them out like a map of their area. However, alongside official names of places, the map included the place names they had used as children. Memories came quickly, sites of adventure, romance and danger layered up with the cards as they spread over the table. We'll start off at that end of the estate. Start off at that end, yeah. Right, we'll start miles off away. with miles away, that, the Blackwoods. There was cows in the fields because we used to try and get me one after. frisbees with the cow pack. Mm. Try and get me one after. Do you know where they used to go on rocks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to pick them up yeah, and frisbee yeah, them yeah. and things like that. The naughty fields, because we've got two naughty fields, one of them's side of Blackwoods. Right, right the way that way. And then you haven't got Nissan Road down, have you? No. Nissan, where Nissan is, is the there used to be an airport. Yeah. We used, that's where the plane used to take off when we had our own air show here. Yeah, I met my first ever boyfriend at the top shops oh. when I was about 14. Uh, That's why I used to have to go and buy little bags of coal for the coal fire. It was up the top shops, wasn't it? When these women in Sunderland turned to think about the future, the role of political economy, of government decisions and the interests of business made itself felt. The women said that the priority for the future was a new community centre with a big kitchen and sprung floor for dancing and gymnastics and many other things. Their old centre had gone as a result of the transfer of the local school from state to private control. We haven't got a community centre now on the estate. We had a one connected to the school, but uh, the school took it back. So, And the schools have become academies, which they don't want anybody in after hours. Once a school becomes an academy instead of a... It's a business, no primary school, it's like a business to them, it's not. Despite the political and economic uncertainty around Britain leaving the European Union, the one thing that the women of this estate in Sunderland felt would always be there was the Nissan car factory. Again, their awareness of the presence of power in this community was clear. I think they just told the government to ransom all the time, Nissan, yeah. to get handout after handout after handout. Yeah, so they threaten, yeah, yeah, threaten we're we'll pull out, we'll pull out, and the government always mare money at them, they'll just keep on doing yeah. that. They got money always at them to come in in the first place, mm-hmm. didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we lost the airport. My husband works at Nissan. On a basic level, the life of a community is in the relationships between people and their interaction with the natural and human-made environment. But what else is it that defines a community? What defines yours? Towns like Horden and Seaham in the northeast of England developed because of their dependence upon one industry. The interaction of people and work led to what might be called an ecology that included all sections of the community and all aspects of work. Jean, who lived near both shipyards and coal mines, describes the connection that her family had to that industry and now its absence. 
And then my mum mom used to say she used to go to school by the sound of the yeah. shipyards. Uh, mm. And then if we wanted runners for yeah. our sledges when we were kids, then they would come from the shipyards. Or if you wanted skipping ropes, they would come from the pit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, it was yeah. all sort of part of the, what you understood the way life was, wasn't it? And that, there isn't any of that linking, no. those things that linked you together. Yeah. There were other connections between that type of work and the people who lived there. Jeff, who grew up in a similar community to Siam, but in a different area, describes the street his family lived on and which, at its end, you could see the top of the coal mine. But he says the pit had a presence beyond just what was visible. And the, the, the whole thing that people have been talking about, about the sound of the pit, I wrote something about this because it, it struck me that, I mean, my mother, I was born on that street, so my mother was carrying me on that street before I was born. And the, the vibrations were everywhere, they were in the ground. So there was a, not only this noise up above, but there was always, and I, I didn't go to the pit, as I said, but I always had a sense, I had a sense at school that my dad was under here. We'd be, talk, we'd be in a geography class and I'd think, oh, this is weird. Well, I, I didn't think that, I just thought, oh, my dad's under here, because I know he's at work this afternoon. If I could have a moment longer, what I'd give to see me dad or see me mum where we belonged and touch the life we used to have when times were good, when we were loved. Feelings of loss caused by the end of a way of life in communities that were so interlinked with industry can lead to a masking of the darker aspects of that life. Death was a regular feature of work in a coal mine and there were major disasters where 10, 20, at times hundreds of people would be killed. There were injuries every day. Pay was very low for most of the 20th century and with life tied so closely to the work, there could be other problems too. It's difficult to hold those things alongside the solidarity, the warmth and care that also existed. But in the town of Horden, Jeff Bright appealed for those in the ghost lab to put down their rose-tinted glasses. This is a phrase that describes a way of seeing where everything in the past looks good and perhaps better than the present. So what is it that is happening when people get together in the ghost labs and discuss the past? 
In Siam, Jeff sought to clarify what it is in the present that might be missing, that draws us back to the past. What we're creating here together this afternoon is not just nostalgia. People often say, oh, it's just nostalgia, this. You're just going over mm. stuff that you're like, no, it's not, it's deeper than that. Mm. The, the sense of yearning that I heard in what Gene was, what I've heard in everybody is saying, the sense, of, what I give to just get one more moment on that street without pit operating and waiting for another moment that did happen to me, the, the baths, it was a pit that had very early baths in the 30s, but there were a wee, there were a wee walk away from the pit, there was like a kind of iron girder bridge over from the pit into the baths. And to see me dad, walking across there and to hear the, the boots going on the, yeah. on the metal and stuff one more moment of that would be priceless yeah. and I, I don't know why that is but it's, it's physical mm -hmm. it's a physical longing yeah. to complete something that's, that's absent that I can never kind of bring back yeah. as much as you imagine it as much as you kind of see it in front of your eyes it's like not enough it's not enough, I still want it to be real. A feeling of longing then, to connect with something missing. But of course, it is not only time that keeps that something missing. It's space, geography and borders. So for a woman from Iraq, now living in Stoke-on-Trent, her longing sought to bridge a gap and a distance between her and her family that remained in her country. She spoke through an interpreter. This is my drawing. This is myself in UK. And I am in how insulated from reaching out to my country, Iraq. And you can see the palm trees, the Chinese. And these are my grandchildren, granddaughters and sons. And uh, all what rattles in my head is the idea of flying back to them. Uh, because I miss my country, Iraq, which is a nice place, blue sky. But these, according to her, these remain as thoughts that I'm not able to interpret in reality. In addition to the small and intimate environment of our community's ghost labs, this project sought to reach people through major political events, such as the Durham Miners Gala. This huge festival in the northern city of Durham sees former coal miners and trade union members march around the streets in celebration of their past and in support of political causes of today. Set up alongside Unite Community, our trade union partner, we spoke to activists from across the country. For Susan, a woman originally from Jamaica, who is a trade union organiser in London, the community tarot cards raised what she saw as the unresolved issue of the slavery of Africans by white Europeans. The wharf where the ships used to come in, where most of it, it turned establishment flat. 
Now, those places could have still be turned around back, give to the black, to do museum, in the sense that, okay, this was the ending point for many slaves. In Ghostly Matters, the book that inspired this research, Avery Gordon wrote a chapter relating to the haunting presence of slavery. You have the blacks who, from generation to generation, still feel hurt by it, with no apology, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no paper. Yeah, yeah. So can you imagine, there's nothing to identify and trace you where you're from. The social haunting projects have tried to create the conditions for different groups from different communities to find ways to speak and to explore the way that the past makes itself felt in the present. Some of what you've heard may, at first thought, seem irrelevant to you. Other things may resonate with your feelings and experiences. We're asking you to consider the issues the programme raises and reflect on your own lives. We would love to hear your views on the themes explored in this documentary. What does the idea of social haunting mean to you? As an individual, how does the past make itself felt in your life, in good or bad or complex ways? How does the past continue to have an effect on your community? So here's what happens next. Your radio station will invite you to contribute your thoughts about what you've heard. Then, those contributions will be sent back to our project at Manchester Metropolitan University in England, and you will have been part of an international conversation. Your knowledge, experiences and insights will have helped our songlines of knowledge move across the world. Those songlines will return to us, enriched with more meaning and understandings of notions of community and of the relationship between past, present and future. Thank you for listening and please get in touch with your radio station to share your thoughts on this programme. So roll out the barrel and bang on the drum There's hope in tomorrow if today ever comes Songlines and Social Haunting was written, presented and produced by me, Max Monday, for Manchester Metropolitan University and its AHRC Connected Communities funded project Songlines to Impact and Legacy, creating living knowledge through working with social haunting. If you would like to comment on the project or your experiences, send an email to WMMT at appleshop.org with social haunting in the subject line. We will pass it along to Max Monday and his colleagues. When Max asked if WMMT would air his documentary on social haunting, I was struck by how similar this sounded to research that Dr. Wayne Coombs had recently shared about historical trauma and his thoughts that this might be an underlying cause of the substance abuse crisis and generally poor mental and physical health among residents of central Appalachia. I interviewed Wayne here at WMMT. Born and raised in West Virginia. I retired last year from, two years ago, from Marshall University. Um, I was uh, on the faculty, full-time faculty, in counseling. Uh, however, I didn't teach classes anymore. I had started um, a unit in the late 90s called the West Virginia Prevention Resource Center. And um, 
Dorothy and I, that was my full-time assignment after a while. And we worked with uh, state agencies in West Virginia, particularly behavioral health and the health department, and worked in every county of the state helping communities to develop prevention programs, try and get a handle on that to address substance abuse issues. We also helped the state uh, put, to get, put together data uh, around substance abuse uses and consequences, consumption patterns, that kind of thing, into a major database that they could use to make decisions about funding and that kind of thing. When I first went into mental health, uh, I had no uh, interest in going into addictions, but um, once you get in the mental health field, uh, you find out quickly you can't avoid it. You know, it just is everywhere. Um, every family has issues with addictions, um, and it just doesn't have to be to substances. It could be other kinds of behaviors, gambling, shopping, sex. All There's plenty of things. Um, it's So the first thing, one of the things I learned was it just... It's not, uh, it's not a simple thing. It's, not, it's very complex, and it's tied to all other parts of human life. It's a very complex thing. Um, other things I've learned, it's not uh, caused by genes or moral failure. Uh, that's not what happens. It's disturbances. What are, uh, most of the research nowadays calls it um, adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, um, that happen with people that disrupt systems, brain systems, and things that make people very vulnerable to addictions. Um, most of the time, people who are addicted to things don't haven't chosen this. It's not a choice, and it's not like a choice that people can make to just stop. Uh, their brain chemistry, their brains have been altered, and they need support uh, to be able to change that. It can change. That's the good news. Um, but it takes a lot of effort. It's one of those things almost takes a village, I would say. While we were doing this, this work in West Virginia, the same question came to my mind. I could not figure out why there were certain places in the state where uh, substance abuse seemed so bad, uh, where there was so much family violence and so much chaos in families and communities were just kind of devastated. They just, you know, there was uh, one community in one county, uh, someone from criminal justice pointed out to me that had, um, I think less than 300 people living in the community and they had 13 police officers. I mean, how does a community with 300 people need 13 police officers? There'd also not been a legitimate birth in that community for 25 years, something like that. Um, so it, you know, I started wondering why does why is this happening in certain places, not other, and how come you see it running in families? Now, I know, and a lot of people think this. One of the most one of the easiest answers to say, well, it has to do with bad genes. They just have bad genes, and so it passes down through the family. Well, that that I know for a fact that does not happen. That's not the way it works. Uh, um, so, I. This question was in my mind, and we started looking. There came a time we had to, uh, we had some federal uh, grant money that needed to be distributed throughout West Virginia to do prevention programs. And uh, if we would have distributed all the money across the state evenly, it wouldn't have been very much money to do anything for any county. So what we decided to do was to identify where were the problems worse in the state. 
and try to focus in those areas. And so we came up with, I think uh, it was around the 13 or 14 uh, most problematic counties in the state. And we put them on a map of the state, uh, colored them in red so we could look at them. Uh, and it started looking familiar. And, and somebody did another map of poverty in West Virginia. And the counties almost lined up there, the same counties. And we looked at school failures, um, you know, graduation rates for those counties and those kind of things and, and family violence kinds of criminal justice data. And they were all kind of the similar counties were all showing up. And I think, well, you know, why is this? And it occurred to me one day we were sitting around talking about it and I was thinking, boy, that aren't the coal, isn't coal mined in all those counties? So I did a uh, another map of coal production in the state and matched that up with, and it was almost an identical match. And I think, well, you know, now what, what the heck does coal have to do with this? Why is that? And it just stuck in my mind, and I, I didn't have an easy answer for that. Um, later on, I uh, read an article by a Israeli researcher um, that was about, she studied three different cultures where there was three different historical uh, traumas, incidents that happened. One was a Jewish family. One was a um, that where the grandparents had gone through the Holocaust. One was an Armenian family whose uh, grandparents had been through the genocide from Turkey and had been dislocated. And one, I think, was a, I can't remember what the third one was, but what she found out was that that trauma that the grandparents of each of those cultures experienced got passed down through the family. And it thought to me, it thought, huh, maybe, I wonder if that could possibly explain how the coal mining might affect West Virginians. Uh, but then, you know, I had work to do and I didn't have a lot of time spent on it. So I kind of gave it up for a while. Well, I came back to it after I retired and started looking again. And a lot more research had been done by this time. And it seems that all over the world, no matter where you look, whenever there have been events that have traumatized social events that have traumatized people, whole groups of people, um, that it's caused problems for them in later generations. And that's, uh, of course, Holocaust survivors. Uh, there's American Indians that are looked at it now. They call that historical trauma. Um, people, uh, African-Americans are looking at that from trauma from slavery People in Kosovo looking at from the Muslim genocide there. Uh, and it's found all over the world, and it's usually associated with war, dislocation, uh, or colonization. And it, it, from knowing some of the history of the Appalachian region, as you'd mentioned before, um, I had known that, you know, the coal mining areas of Appalachia had been colonized, industrially colonized uh, by coal companies. And the way that was done was very brutal. And people basically had their land stolen, uh, taken from them, and were forced into essentially labor camps. And they didn't have a lot of freedom with that. And so those, those connected up for me. And, and so that's why I've kind of decided to pursue this area and take a look at it. What would be next steps, do you think? Well, uh, I'm not 
sure yet. I think part of it is finding out what allows the trauma that grandparents have experienced or great-grandparents. Because if you think about it in terms of coal, this has been going on for over 100 years. Probably we're talking three, four, maybe five generations uh, of people who've, who've been impacted by the way coal mining was done in central Appalachia. Um, how do you work with whole communities? Uh, that becomes kind of different. Now, I know something tells me that there has something to do with um, the stories that communities tell themselves about their own histories, um, whether it's their individual histories or their the whole community, uh, what's called public narrative, um, can have a big impact, can be a way that a lot of this is, is transmitted down through generations. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a fellow that's written a research article that looks at historical trauma as public narrative. Maybe there's a way of approaching communities uh, through retelling their own stories, looking at it in a different way. That was West Virginia psychologist Wayne Coombs. We will end with comments from Jeff Bright. I asked him about the process they used in the ghost labs to encourage participation and what impact they feel has been achieved. Avery makes the point somewhere that a social haunting can't be captured by the conventional disciplines because it's always in their blind field. So we've got to look for it somewhere else. We've got to find a way of seeing ghosts that can't be seen and hearing ghosts that can't be heard. So it's a completely different kind of inquiry that we've got to develop. And for us, our first hunch was that arts methods, a number of us are involved in, in arts work as well. I, I work as a musician alongside the stuff that I do in this. So we had a hunch that maybe we needed arts methods. So we kind of brought that into it and devised pretty much in an improvisationally, all, almost off the top of our heads, a number of uh, fairly playful games around the uh, 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 workshop games, if you like, around the notion of haunting generally. We designed a pack of tarot cards. Uh, we talked about ghost hunting. We went on ghost hunts and so on. Uh, so they, that, that's how we, we work with the arts devices. And I think what we've been able to do, the success that we've had, which has surprised us all, has been that that sets up a certain kind of space, and it's it's the and a certain process within that space, and it's that space and that process that we think is the most important thing that we've done. That process allows people to share their stories, sometimes personal, sometimes group stories, sometimes very deep and painful, sometimes light and humorous and so on, but to place them into a collective setting. So we begin to uh, create a place where feeling, affect, which it tends to be called in terms of the social theory that's around, but basically feeling, it allows feeling to be placed into a collective situation away from the privatization of feeling that's occurred over this last 30 years, placed into a collective situation so that it can be held collectively. And that seems to liberate something 
that we're still trying to theorize that is wholly beneficial that is a re-energizing of the senses of solidarity and collective belonging in community and at least is proto-political it's at least a beginning point for a reimagination of the politics of those communities i don't know whether that will make sense to your readers it's quite difficult to express uh, but that's what we think we've stumbled on the ghost labs seem to create something and we're not being sentimental about this it's not a sentimental form it's a collective form but it's some kind of love that enhances the the our our place in the world as humans for those two and three hours that we're together and it lasts over for a while we have to find we have to be able to develop a structure that me, it means it can last more permanently and can kind of uh, regenerate truly regenerate uh, the places uh, that we're working in you've been listening to an exploration of social haunting how the past can make itself felt in the present with guests dr jeff bright radio artist max mundy and dr wayne coombs thanks to rich kirby and the poe folks for their rendition of the lnn don't stop here anymore we will close out with some breaking some true a song by brenda heslop and ribbon road based on research with manchester met on social haunting the song comes from a meeting with women at Townhead Farm Estate in Sunderland, England. The whole community came together. The community came together for her. The community paid for his funeral. The community paid for his funeral. The community paid for his funeral. There was chaps coming in here who didn't even know putting ten pounds. Just coming in, in putting the money in, just walking out. There was chaps coming in here who didn't even know putting ten pounds. Just coming in, putting the money in, just walking out. I hear, I listen and see. Big hearts are talking to me. It's a church, it's a hall, it's a place for them all. And I know it's a good place to be. They tell of the past and the growing. The years that settle on faces that care. These women of life take the dark and the light. They empty me out when I'm there. So roll out the barrel and bang on the drum. There's hope for tomorrow if today ever comes. And I could cry now for the things I've been through. Families like trees, some breaking, some true. I know they don't see it, sometimes I've been hard, they pass it off, laugh it away. What use is a hard word when kindness will do, and love 
your host, Mimi Pickering. Thank you for listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT, Real People Radio.